Hi friends, just before we dive into today's episode, I want to ask a huge favor from you. Would you please consider being a supporter of the Why Catholic Podcast? There's four ways you can do this. First, you can become a patron and financially support this podcast. The basic level is $5 a month. To become a patron, go to whycatholic.substack.com slash subscribe. Secondly, you can support this podcast by purchasing something from the Why Catholic merch shop on Etsy. Just go to etsy.com slash shop slash whycatholic. Third, you can also support Why Catholic by sharing episodes with your community. And lastly, you can support Why Catholic by inviting me to come and speak at your next parish event. For more information about that, please send me an email at whycatholic@substack.com. Thank you, friends, for your help. I couldn't do this without you. I wrote political commentary for a number of years, and one of my favorite topics is on the moral majority and how that affected the elections of the 1980s and how it still has a ripple effect in politics even today, even though the moral majority officially disbanded in the late 1980s. The moral majority, led by the late Jerry Falwell, the founder of Liberty University, injected religion into politics in a way that America had never seen before. In fact, the whole premise of the moral majority was this. While religiously minded people were the majority in the United States, only about half were registered voters. Falwell saw an opportunity to move the country in a moral direction by getting churchgoers to the polls and then getting them to vote for the same person. And in 1980, it worked. In the 1980 election, Republican Ronald Reagan carried 44 states to the presidential incumbent Democrat Jimmy Carter's six plus D.C. Reagan won 489 electoral votes. Carter won a dismal 49. It wasn't even close. Ronald Reagan became the 40th president of the United States, and a huge factor was that two-thirds of all white evangelical voters that turned out in the election voted for Ronald Reagan. The moral majority strategy was a success, but what's ironic is that the moral majority, also known as the religious right, mobilized millions of Christians to vote and not to vote for fellow born-again Christian Jimmy Carter, a Democrat. They mobilized them to vote Republican. It's a very interesting story if you ask me. The moral majority lobbied for three things, a pro-life constitutional amendment, prayer in public schools, and in the midst of the overthrow of the U.S. Embassy in Iran and a lengthy hostage situation, the moral majority wanted the government to flex its military muscles. I'm not going to get into all the details, but at least in my Protestant circles, in the aftermath of this injection of religion into politics, there have been two emerging camps. One point of view echoes the moral majority by saying the reason our country is a moral failure is because we've taken religion out of the public square. This was particularly amplified when it came out that President Bill Clinton had an affair while in the Oval Office. I might add that President Clinton marked the end of the moral majority's Republican win streak. Even today, we see the aftermath in the form of Christian nationalism and this desire to take back the country and make it some sort of theocracy of sorts. But on the other hand, in the aftermath of the moral majority, there's been a group of Christians who work diligently to keep religion out of politics, to separate church and state as far as possible. The way they see it is that the second we allow prayer in public schools is the second that any teacher can influence students by praying to whomever they want. Or if we mandate bringing the Bible back into public schools, then we're relying on educators who probably aren't theologically trained to teach about the Bible. As they see it, it might be winning the battle, but losing the war. 
And so over the past 40 years, there's been this shift in the Protestant world where they've gone from let's inject religion into politics and force religion in a public square to more of a wrestling with how much should a non-Christian be expected to act like a Christian. And I really wrestled with this question as well until I stumbled upon the Catholic's long-standing teaching on virtue. Hi, this is Justin Hibbard, and you're listening to Why Catholic, my podcast about the what and why of Catholicism. Since episode 73, we've been focusing on Catholic ethos. Ethos means the characteristic spirit of a community as manifested in its beliefs. Each of these episodes focuses on the way Catholicism gets lived out. A lot of times you'll hear these words and phrases used, but maybe not get a thorough explanation about what they mean. So that's what we're doing in this shorter series. Today, I want to talk about virtue. If you recall, in episode 77, we talked about the transcendentals, and I mentioned that the transcendentals are not just a Catholic thing. Philosophers, including Plato and Aristotle, explored this idea of transcendentals, which existed in all matter and which all matter could be assessed. This was later developed by middle-aged scholastics, most famously St. Thomas Aquinas, and the Catholic Church has long echoed these philosophers in saying that the transcendentals are truth goodness, and beauty. All of us have qualities of truth, goodness, and beauty. We all long to replicate truth, goodness, and beauty, and we can all be measured by standards of truth, goodness, and beauty. Virtue is similar. If you've studied philosophy, a primary topic is on virtue. Aristotle defined virtue as, quote, that which makes both a person and what he does good, end quote. Dr. Joseph Piper, a Thomas scholar and an expert on the subject of virtue, provided this explanation in his book, The Four Cardinal Virtues, which I've linked to in the show notes. Quote, the doctrine of virtue has things to say about this person. It speaks both of the kind of being which is his when he enters the world as a consequence of his createdness and the kind of being he ought to strive toward and attain to by being prudent, just, temperate and brave. The doctrine of virtue is one form of the doctrine of obligation, but one by nature free of regimentation and restriction." In the last episode, I focused on this idea of the unity of life, becoming the person we aim to be internally and externally, privately and publicly. Virtue is essential to the unity of life. Throughout history, the philosophers have articulated and repeated four particular characteristics. We call them the cardinal virtues, prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance. The term cardinal comes from the word cardo, which means a hinge or that on which a thing turns, its principal point. While we might choose any number of qualities to be virtues, these four are called cardinal virtues because all other virtues can be categorized under them and hinge on them. Prudence justice, fortitude, and temperance. Each of these virtues could be its own episode, but my goal for today is to broadly address the topic of virtue and how essential it is for our everyday interactions, especially with the secular world. Let's begin by defining these four cardinal virtues. Prudence is considered the mother of all virtues. To be prudent, one should be able to look at a situation with a clear and honest objectivity, reference and apply moral truths, make a moral judgment, and then put that into action. Prudence is seeking to accomplish the good in a good way. Check this out. What do you need in order to be prudent? You need to know truth and goodness, don't you? What are truth and goodness? They are transcendentals. I think what you'll find is that the transcendentals, truth, goodness, and beauty, transcend and apply in some way to all of these virtues, hence why we call them transcendentals. Prudence requires three aspects, memoria, docilitas, and solertia. 
Memoria means having a true-to-being memory which can accurately recall things and events as they happened. In a sense, it's learning from experience while accurately recalling the facts of that experience. Docilitas means docility, which is a receptiveness to the advice and counsel of other people. Solertia means sagacity, where we get the word sage. You might have heard the term that's sage advice. Solertia, or sagacity, is the ability to understand the consequences of an action or inaction and can act in a way towards the good in a manner that is good. The second of the cardinal virtues is justice, which St. Thomas Aquinas defined as, quote, a habit whereby a man renders to each one his due with constant and perpetual will, end quote. What is our due? Well, Jesus answered this by quoting the Shema, the central commandment, the law on which all other laws hinge. He told us to, quote, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself, end quote. Thus, we owe justice to God and we owe justice to our neighbor. The virtue of justice has three dimensions, communicative or reciprocal justice, distributive justice, and legal or general justice. Commutative or reciprocal justice governs relationships between individuals. In a sense, it's contract justice. Distributive justice deals with the relationship of the community as a whole to its individual members. Justice means that the whole community must promote the common good for each person, not just the majority. Finally, legal or general justice addresses the individual's relationship to the whole community. In this sense, every person has the duty to uphold and obey the just laws that ensure the common good. The third cardinal virtue is fortitude, which is the ability to stand firm against and endure the hardships of life and to remain steadfast in pursuing what is good. In a sense, it's courage as well as patience and long-suffering, but it's always exercised with reason, assessing the true nature and value of situations. For example, is this particular situation a just cause for which I should take a stand? By not taking a stand, am I succumbing to peer pressure and cowardice, or is it actually not a cause which values taking a stand? The last of the cardinal virtues is temperance, which is the ability to keep passions and emotions under the control of reason. Temperance not only means one's moderation to pleasures in order to achieve a balance in the use of created goods, but it also includes using goods in a good way. For example, it's not wrong to have money, but a temperate person doesn't love nor try to acquire wealth for the sake of acquiring wealth, but to acquire wealth for the purpose of doing good. There are two essential parts to temperance, shame and honor. Both of them guide us towards being temperate. On one hand, if someone found out about our unbridled passions, we would feel shame. On the other hand, we feel a sense of honor when we practice temperance and control ourselves, especially in the midst of heavy temptation. Now that we've talked about the four virtues, let's talk about the opposite of virtue, vices. A vice is something contrary to a virtue. For example, instead of prudence, one chooses to be impulsive. Instead of justice, one chooses to be selfish. Instead of fortitude, one folds under peer pressure. And instead of temperance, one opts for licentiousness. The other day, a friend of mine who is a leader in a Baptist denomination posted a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones, the late Welsh Congregationalist minister of the Calvinist wing of the British evangelical movement in the 20th century. It said, quote, it is no part of the Christian church's business to be exhorting the world to practice Christian ethics, for it cannot do it. It is difficult for the Christian. It is impossible for the world, end quote. I responded to him by asking the question, what do you mean by Christian ethics? 
If by Christian ethics we mean that they should attend church weekly or fast during Lent or pray daily, then I would agree with Martin Lloyd-Jones. But if by Christian ethics we mean virtue, then I think it's right and fair for us to exhort the world on things like prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance. In fact, I think the secular world plays at these virtues but has no understanding of what they are because by and large, we don't study philosophy. So it fails to ask questions like, what is prudent in this situation or what is true justice? In fact, I think one of the reasons why the Protestant world has struggled to understand its place in the public square is because by and large it has disregarded Catholicism and the long history of philosophy that has been a part of Catholic scholasticism throughout the ages. Take a listen to this clip from the Coming Home Network in which a Protestant seminary professor named Dr. Jason Reed stumbled upon virtue ethics and how that led him to the Catholic Church. The funny thing about our seminary, although it was evangelical, the person, the two philosophers, the two the intellectuals apart from the scripture we read was Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas. And so there are two classes that hit me like a mountain of bricks when I realized, oh, um, there's more to this than I think maybe we believe. And a perfect example of that was teaching virtue ethics. We got into the virtue ethics of Aristotle. And of course, according to Aristotle, uh, being good is not a matter of information. Being a good is part of a character that you that you acquire over time. And that character being found between two extremes, both are vices. And so I'm teaching these things about courage, integrity, and um, love, justice. And what was fascinating to the students and to myself about Aristotle is that these things were not some sort of abstract entities. Justice lies in here. Love is in here. Courage is in here, or it's not, right? And more, uh, conversely, cowardness is in here. Um, uh, being um, lacking self-control is in here. And so I'm, I'm explaining this, and of course you can see in the students' eyes that they feel like they've got an answer to how to live. Then one student raised their hand, they said, so where do I find this in the evangelical church? And I said, you, well, there's uh, Jay Bujashevsky, there's Peter Kraft, there's Etienne Gilson, but there aren't really any leading Protestant thinkers on the topic. And so the students were telling me, well, well what else do the Catholics believe about this? So that was the first thing. So here's, some, here's a profound insight in how to succeed as a human that the Catholics have been talking about for centuries, and the Protestants haven't even doesn't even know the conversation exists. A lot of them, and the, and to come to find out, those who start this convert this will kind of find out later. Those who start this conversation, trying to in, encounter virtue, encounter that life, they don't stay evangelical. Most of them will convert. You know, the cardinal virtues, prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance, are actually explicitly mentioned in Scripture. Where? The Book of Wisdom, chapter 8, verse 7, which says, quote, She, wisdom, teaches temperance and prudence and justice and fortitude, which are such things as men can have nothing more profitable in life, end quote. 
We might see how the lack of Protestant understanding of cardinal virtues might have something to do with removing certain books, like the Book of Wisdom from Scripture, just as Protestants have removed the books of First and Second Maccabees, in which we find the theology of praying for the dead. This podcast is called Why Catholic, and one of the reasons why I am Catholic, like Dr. Jason Reed, is that the concept of cardinal virtues and how the Catholic Church has long understood and taught this framework of virtue helps me make sense of the world, how I should live and act in this world, as well as how I should call others to live and to act. However, there's a warning here for all of us, especially those of us who are Catholic. If we reject studying, understanding, and applying virtue ethics, we will fail to speak into this world. It is right to exhort someone to virtue because God's virtues, prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance are mankind's virtues. And because they are innate in all of us, we recognize a need for these virtues and an imbalance when we don't live up to them. And so just as the Catholic Church appeals to truth, goodness, and beauty and lures people to Jesus by speaking that language which appeals to all of us, so too can these cardinal virtues, along with the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love, help people see the wisdom of the Christian faith by bringing that sense of balance that all of us long for. Uh, one last word of exhortation. I started this podcast by talking about politics. I don't know what your political bent is, nor do I care. Nor am I going to tell you that you should vote for a particular party or a particular candidate. But as you consider the candidates in an election, I would encourage you to vote for the most virtuous person and the person you believe that is going to live and rule virtuously. I hear people say all the time that they're voting for the lesser of two evils. Well, whenever you vote for the lesser evil, you, you're still voting for evil. Instead, ask yourself, who is the most virtuous? Who will do good and do it in a good way? And if your answer is truly nobody, then I personally think you are better off not casting your ballot for either candidate. That's my opinion, at least. And when you attend a meeting in the public square, maybe a business meeting, maybe a school board meeting or a city council meeting, and there's a particular moral topic up for debate, bring the conversation back to virtue. What is the most prudent here? What solution is the most just? What demonstrates the most fortitude? What is the most temperate? Instead of saying, this is right or this is wrong, which is subjective, use the virtues to explain why something is right and something is wrong. In the end, it is not only virtuous, it is also innately human to call one to virtue. Virtue is not only good for the individual, it is good for all of society. Thank you for joining me for Why Catholic. Be sure to subscribe to Why Catholic wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also subscribe to my Substack site and get the next episode in your email inbox. As a subscriber, you get a special discount code to the Why Catholic Etsy store. If you've been blessed by this podcast and you're feeling generous, there's also a way to financially support it and patrons get some extra perks. To become a free subscriber or a patron, just go to whycatholic.substack.com slash subscribe. Also join me on Instagram at whycatholicpodcast, all one word. Thanks again for listening. My name is Justin Hibbard, and this is Why Catholic. God bless you.